the system right now is and has been flipped where the most privileged individuals get the services that they need and can get out of these terrible circumstances, but the actual most vulnerable aren't getting the resources or are being treated negatively in places that give the resources, which then makes them not want to go back. I'm Heather Venegas, and you're listening to King County Recovery Conversations, a place to celebrate recovery and help break the stigma of addiction and mental health. Hi there. My name is Tristan Cycle. My pronouns are they, them, or he, him. And I am one of the co-hosts for King County Recovery Conversations, as well as the Director of Advocacy and Programs for the Washington Recovery Alliance. You're listening to King County Recovery Conversations, a place to celebrate recovery and help break the stigma of addiction and mental health. Today, I'm joined with Ari Renee, pronouns they, them, who is a peer services specialist at Peer Seattle, and Jesse Alalawi, pronouns she, her, who works as a program manager at Peer Seattle as well. Thank you two so much for joining me today. Um, and just to get us started here, can you both share a little bit more about your recovery story and what led you to work at the Peer Seattle? Yeah, so... Um... My name is Jesse Alalawi, and I am a recovering addict. I'm a former sex worker and um, survivor. And I'm also a trans woman and part of the LGBT community. Um, my journey going into recovery, like many I hear, is full of rock bottoms and a final rock bottom that kind of pushed me in the direction that I needed to go in order to seek out the help that I needed um, to get past a lot of the struggles um, that I had found myself in six or seven years ago. And fortunately for me, finding an LGBT organization that focused on recovery was like finding a safe space. Um, and something that I wanted to become a part of. Um, and so when finding recovery, I also found family, I found community, and I found a purpose for my future. Um, and one of my favorite things about recovery spaces in general is it's the only place that I have ever seen entire groups of people collectively trying to better themselves. Ari, I'd love to hear a little bit about your story as well. Um, yeah, so I think there's so much in common, Jesse, between you and I, which is one of the reasons that I love working with you. Um, I think for me, um, my yeah, my recovery also, I think it happens in phases, which I do think is, is also really common for us. I, one of my big things was um, I have, I managed to, you know, quit drinking, which I felt like was the thing that was my recovery focus and then everything would get better. Right. And I quickly found out that, um, that's just step one. Right. So for me, it actually ultimately ended up being that my mental health recovery journey was a lot more arduous, um, and a lot more challenging than even the substance side of things. I think, um, as a person who is a non-binary person, a queer person in this world, uh, it that like 
pieces of my identity being not affirmed in various recovery spaces, like really created a, a barrier for me to being able to get all the way into what I would call the full recovery that I'm in today. Um, I, uh, you know, it, it was not until after I started really addressing my mental health that recovery felt like a tangible thing. Um, and a lot, a lot of, like I said, those barriers is, is related to my identity. One of the things that really pushed me towards becoming a peer counselor was not seeing anyone who looked like me or understood me in that recovery space. You know, I was the only queer person in my partial hospitalization program. I was the only, there were no counselors that could support me. The closest I had was a like cisgendered gay man who, whose life didn't really match my own. And so I, you know, decided that I was going to be that person that I didn't see in my own recovery, um, who I didn't have available to me, which I think is a really common experience for folks with um, intersecting marginalized identities in, in recovery spaces. Well, as, a, as a fellow queer person in recovery, um, I feel that many in our community can deeply connect with what both of, of what y'all are saying and the need of feeling seen and, and finding a place of belonging in our community. Um, so thank you so much both for, for sharing. Um, you know, this kind of leads me to my next question is, uh, what would you say to someone in the LGBTQ plus community, uh, who is interested in behavioral health recovery? What would, what should get them started? I think one thing that I would point out kind of going back to what Ari was saying about the struggles of a problem in general in your life and thinking about that problem and overcoming that problem as the solution. And I think that like Ari was talking about how they got sober from drinking and they thought that their life was going to get better or just be normal. And um, unfortunately there's a lot of underlying um, mental health or behavioral health issues at play that we might not have even be necessarily aware of. And so as a trans person, I felt the exact same way when I came out as trans, that all of my depression, all of these negative feelings about self, all of these um, worries and fears, they're going to go away once I come out as trans. And it didn't happen. It <laughs> It wasn't some magical switch that I could switch off and everything is fixed because I figured out about my identity. Um, and so I bring that up, um, segueing into this question that I personally think that behavioral health recovery or mental health recovery, um, they're essential to most LGBT individuals um, because of the life that we live and because of the boxes that we are forced into, we should be seeking these services out. And unfortunately, again, playing to what Ari said, there isn't a lot of resources or there has been a lack of resources for a long time for our communities. And I think that it is time for that to change because um, we can't just be focusing about the demographics that we see in the world. We have to be focusing about 
on the demographic needs of those communities. And unfortunately, the, the more you intersect inside of these communities, the more issues that are statistically at play. And so the system right now is and has been flipped where the most privileged individuals get the services that they need and can get out of these terrible circumstances, but the actual most vulnerable aren't getting the resources or are being treated negatively in places that give the resources, which then makes them not want to go back. Mm -hmm. And so personally, when talking about the LGBT community as a whole and why we should be interested in behavioral health, it's because we need it. We need support and we need support from people that have lived the life that we have lived and have survived it. And we also need support from experts that know more about than we do. Um, And so it's important as LGBT people to try to take up space, try to create change where you are and where you can, and it's not going to be fun. Um, But I know that I've pushed for change within LGBT organizations for more inclusivity when it comes to TGNC individuals or BIPOC trans individuals because the needs are so much greater for those communities. And so we need to be doing even better. Yeah, I, Jesse, I love everything that you said. I think the first thing that comes to my mind when I'm thinking about addressing someone who is a part of the queer community who may be considering recovery is that, you know, there is community out there for you and it might take a longer time to find it than if you are part of a more neurotypical or more cisgendered heterosexual like community um, those are obviously the resources that are at the front. Like Jesse is saying, they're very like publicly accessible, but there is community out there for queer folks seeking recovery. You just have to look a little harder for it. Um, Tristan, one of the things you and I have spoken about is that um, when I was first doing recovery, it was from a very 12 step model sort of place. And What my friends and I ended up doing, which I would now identify as peer support, was starting our own sort of pseudo AA meetings in my friend's apartment where we were adjusting scripts and adjusting language from within the 12-step model to fit our needs, to address these co-occurring disorders and this trauma that has come with being trans right and and the impact that that has on us and that we but it was secret right it was private it was invite only so if you're a queer person and you're looking for that recovery you know it's just like what is the uh what is the speakeasy door that you have to find to be able to go through right but that those spaces do exist um and that there is sober community on the other side too. I think one of the things that's really challenging as a queer person seeking recovery is that most of the spaces that have been traditionally set up to be safe for the queer community are really based in this party culture. They're based in these art scenes that have a lot of 
drug use, a lot of um, potential harm. You know, I, I come from an arts background. That's what I was doing before I was a peer counselor. And I know that I was terrified that my career was going to fall apart because I was no longer able to do that sort of like networking that happens at a bar after, you know, you're doing rehearsals. And that had a huge impact on how long it took me to seek out recovery. But I found once I, I sort of forced was forced into that discovery for myself, forced into making that decision, it was either enter recovery or die, right, as is often the case, right, there was no, like, it came to sort of that point. Um, and but yeah, I would say, like, the community does exist. You just have to just have to hunt for it. And I really hope that that becomes less of a, a thing in the future. I think that like one of the things that's been so inspiring about being able to work with Jesse at Pier Seattle has been like, really pushing that our community is here and we do take up space and not just once you're through the door but really encouraging people into the door into the door right like using social media and these sort of like guerrilla advertising getting the community awareness and hopefully them feeling safer to start doing this sort of work for themselves a lot earlier too. That's something that's really inspiring for me is seeing how many people who are a lot younger than I was when I first started sort of interrogating my relationship with substances or understanding my mental health. Like I see younger and younger humans coming in and, and being able to access these resources and it's, and it's inspiring and it's amazing to be able to see them maybe not experience as many rock bottoms as I think a lot of folks that are our age um, had to experience because they were feeling so isolated and like there was no one there to support them. So, you know, there, there are people here to support now. And I want to um, make a point to note that there are tons of queers behind the scenes trying to change the systems. I know a ton of queer individuals that get paid to go into these corporations and consult in how to better um, create diversity and welcome the LGBT community. Um, and I do that in the shelter system or in treatment centers, um, just trying to educate um, I'm privileged that I'm allowed and able to do that. Um, but I think it's important. Mine was, I guess my response was a little bit negative, but the, the work is being done. I see it often. Um, I do also want to talk about the, um, I think it's a false narrative that like queers, that recovery isn't queer. <laughs> we, um, or that all queer people hang out in bars, or like it's it's just um, perpetuating a stereotype, in my opinion, that isn't necessarily valid and isn't valid for the queer culture that I grew up in or that I found as an adult. And um, I think it's important to to recognize that recovery is a huge part of the queer community and should be a huge part of the queer community because our community is statistically 
more likely to end up homeless or jobless or addicted or X, Y, and Z. And so um, recovery is clear. I love that. And I mean, I think too, like we, we also are in a really different kind of place to be able to, I guess, interrogate or uh, question ourselves with ourselves, right? We are people who have already had to do so much work to find our place in the world, right? So using those skills that you've already learned to sort of ask yourself questions about who you are and what you need and what are the barriers in front of you? Like if you just apply all of those same sort of thoughts to your own mental health and to all, you know, that, that part of yourself, I think you will find that a lot of queer people are able to make a lot of progress even faster than some other humans who haven't had that kind of experience before. They've never had to sort of think about themselves and where they exist in society and what role society is playing in their lives. Um, so, you know, it's sort of like once you once you can get in the door, you might be surprised at how fast you're able to like see real tangible changes happening in your life. Such a powerful point. Um, I think often we we do think about the challenges and barriers that are faced by queer community members to getting into help and getting access to services. Uh, but what we're seeing here also is that, you know, there's a unique resiliency, right, that comes from uh, having that degree of self-reflection, self-awareness to know who you are and know your identity. And really, you know, what Bay for Health Recovery in this context is about is expanding that to assess other components of your life, other components of your identity. Um, and I so appreciate both of you for these responses. I, I heard, you know, very beginning, um, it's really not about the destination, it's about the journey. I feel like in our society, we're very results and destination heavy focused. So, um, you know, just knowing that, you know, there's not necessarily going to be an end, so to speak. It's always about just the journey and supporting people during that journey and making sure they have the right support. Um, so thank you both for, for saying all that. Um, and I know you've already have discussed a little bit about some of those barriers and challenges faced by LGBTQ plus individuals. Um, but I'm just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on what those barriers are um, for individuals trying to get on this pathway of recovery. Yeah, I mean, I think it starts from the first moment you walk into a recovery space, right? It's, um, you know, one of the things that we have worked really hard about in Peer Seattle is sort of building a safe space agreements and finding ways to build safety from the beginning to the end of the experience. So it's making sure you have things like trans affirming intake processes where people's chosen names are what is presented first on a document as opposed to a legal name or a birth name or a dead name, which is the thing at the top. And then four columns down, you have a preferred name um, that is being ignored, right? So you, from the beginning, you have these people who are supposed to be helping you, but they are invalidating who you are from the moment you walk in the door, right? Um, Then another one of the things, like I had mentioned earlier, is having that representation on staff or in your, you know, on your volunteer teams, however, whoever it is that's helping support people in your organization, that representation is important. It is the first barrier because if you don't have people on your staff who know what the needs of the community are, how are you going to make your space a safer space? And how are you going to 
help those individuals, right? It is a very unique experience to be trans and seeking recovery. And it is very hard to have to spend a lot of time educating and advocating for your own identity in a space with people who are meant to be supporting you, right? Um, One of the things that's really common too is this question right now that everyone is talking about of bathrooms, right? Bathrooms and pronouns, which is what everyone wants to be talking about all the time, but they do matter, right? Like being able to feel safe to go to the restroom in a place that you are that you are going for support is, is important. Um, Jesse has, I know, fun stats on uh, the impact of non-affirming bathrooms. Um, but, you know, and, and yeah, and pronouns, right? If I if I have to continuously correct someone on my name and my pronouns and other words that they're using to refer to me, then I am not going to feel safe. And I'm not going to then therefore like let my guard down and be vulnerable. And we know that vulnerability is such an important step in healing. If you can't be vulnerable, you can't, you know, you're not really going to be able to start really utilizing resources to be able to help you um and so that is like such a huge barrier as i know a lot of trans and gender non-conforming folks who spend all of their time educating in healthcare settings especially um and very little time receiving actual support well and that's the number one thing that i that i hear from members that are coming and utilizing our services here at pure seattle is that they don't have to think about their identity when they're here. And I think that that is a very um, sad and unique reality for a lot of trans individuals. They are constantly thinking about their identity, not because they're vapid or um, into themselves, but because there's actual real life safety concerns at play. And, so when, when you go into a recovery environment, for most people, all you're thinking about is your re- recovery, your past, your present, and what your future might look like. And you know that everyone there is there to do the same thing, to support and send you love and X, Y, and Z. But when I remember going to 12-step, especially like six, seven years ago, where I would be in a meeting and at the end of a 12-step meeting, everyone gathers around and puts their arms around each other and says the serenity prayer. And countless times, the person that was next to me refused to put their arms around me. And so it's small things like that, where it's like, you are forced to face your existence in this world a lot more than a cis straight person, um, just being LGBT. And so if you can create spaces, especially medical spaces or spaces of recovery or um, self-improvement, like where people are actively trying to work on issues that they have, if we take out the stigmatizing um, worldview around these um, communities, then you are able to access the resources and care that you actually need, which we've been able to see here at Pierce Seattle, which has been awesome. Um, I also think that choice matters. 
choice is huge. And for, um, for LGBT people and especially for trans people going into medical facilities or recovery spaces or mental health facilities, um, we don't feel like we have choice. And I think this plays well into peer work as well. Like peer work is scientifically proven to work because of a lived experience and because of choice. You're not telling somebody what they need to do in their recovery. You are working alongside them and letting them make the choices along their way. And that process of recovery is scientifically proven to be more successful because the individuals that are able to make their own choices in PATH, regardless of whether that was a quote-unquote good or bad choice, are more likely to succeed and are more likely to be invested in their recovery and in the choices that they make. And so when there's a lack of choice, so take a trans woman, for example. When I was going into treatment, I called a treatment place in Seattle I felt pretty safe in Seattle. I thought that I would be able to go to a treatment in Seattle. And immediately I was asked if I had a penis and, um, and told that, well, if I did, then I would either be roomed with a man or they'd have to tell all the women at the facility that I had a penis and ask who would share a room with me. And so it didn't feel like I had a choice. I had no choice. And then friends who are in recovery, they went to treatment in Arizona or in Texas or X, Y, and Z. And when you think about a trans person living in the U.S. today, there's over 37 states are anti-trans, like adamantly anti-trans. And so that reduces 37 states that you can travel to right now. Um, and so there's all of these barriers that get in the way when, and these, this lack of choice in your recovery as a LGBT individual, and especially as a marginalized inner, inner um, section. Intersectional. Intersectional individual within our community, um, like a black intersex trans person, has it so tough and has no options for their care if they're able to even get it. Yeah, I mean, I thinking about the idea of choice, Jesse, one of the things we talk a lot about is how right now, because of how hostile the environment is in this country towards trans people, there are, you know, eight cities, maybe that I can come up with off the top of my head where I would rec where I would feel like a, as a trans person, I am safe, or I would feel comfortable telling someone else who is trans that they would be safe here. But then those are the major cities, right, which are the most socially progressive, they also tend to have the highest cost of living, right? So I am going to potentially have to choose between feeling safe and being able to afford food, afford housing. We are seeing a huge increase in young trans people fleeing to Seattle specifically 
And we know that the cost of living in this city has skyrocketed. So we have these young trans folks who are seeking safety because their parents and the other spaces that they were in are unsafe for them in that way. And then they're here and they end up in a shelter that there are no trans specific shelters here. So there is no guaranteed safe spot. There's a lot of people being asked to detransition in order to have a space like Jesse is talking about, right? Like I, uh, in a, in a hilarious same, but different, I, when I was seeking inpatient support, um, I had spent hours telling these people that I was non-binary, that my pronouns were they, them, and like all these things. And I finally, you know, after 12 hours of sitting in, in just a bed in the hospital, they came and they're like, well, we have a bed for you to go to, but you know, you're going to have to be okay being in a bed with a, being in a, in a room with a trans person, which, you know, we know you, you might not. So, so it's fine. And I'm like, I literally spent the last 12 hours telling you I was non-binary. So that's actually my dream come true. But even just the stigmatizing language that the, the staff are using to ask me this question, which shouldn't be a question at all, right? That shouldn't need to be a conversation, but I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah, please. Like, oh my, that's, that's the best news I've ever had is that there's actually another queer person in this facility that I can share a room with. Um, but that there's such a big disconnect there even. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, I know one key principle that we have around uh, recovery at the Washington Recovery Alliance is that, you know, it's really emphasizing uh, that recovery is a self-defined journey, right? Uh, so I know that both of y'all really touched uh, heavily on the impact of choice and, of course, queer representation in these spaces so that, you know, that choice can best be heard um, and actually uh, fulfilled, right? So, and it also makes me think of the recovery for all. And we say that a lot, right? But does that really include everyone, right? And really making sure that the all is inclusive of these uh, other, you know, experiences of being human that um, unfortunately do not get the support needed in society, right? So thank you both for, for sharing that. I know it can be really difficult talking a little bit about these barriers and y'all both have seemed to um, rise above so many of these challenges to be where y'all are and provide the space that y'all do. So we're just so fortunate for that. Um, and kind of talking a little bit, you know, about these challenges um, and then beyond that as well, uh, I want to know a little bit more how y'all feel that cultural identity uh, affects an individual's process towards recovery. Is there anything that y'all could speak on to that? Well, I think one of the big things is just understanding that um, being a queer person in this country sort of means trauma no matter what else has happened, right? Like, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about when we're training folks is that like being a queer person in and of itself is not a mental health problem, right? Like being trans is not a mental health diagnosis. However, being trans in a world that is actively hostile towards you is trauma is inevitable, right? It's not a question of like, is there trauma in this person's experience? It's a question of how much trauma is there in someone's experience and how many different places have they experienced discrimination because of, because of these marginalized identities. Um, I think that, you know, you have to think about someone's experience at home and at school and in a job and walking down the street, right? Like literally walking down the street, trying to get on a bus, 
trying to just go to buy clothing, right? It's like there is no escaping that, especially if you are a person who is not does not pass, um, which there's a whole set of barriers involved in being able to pass too, right? Um, and a person may not want to do that. And that is also their right. But, you know, if I'm not, if I don't, past then what kind of violence am I opening myself up to um and and I think there's like just a lot of you sort of have to think about everything all at once you can't it it becomes hard to like pick out one individual uh, target behavior right dbt is often all about like what is the target behavior what is the target thing and you can't isolate in the same way when you are part of a marginalized community everything is feeding each other in in this way that's like very challenging and we don't have a lot of good language or resources to support those communities in sort of formal behavioral health settings which is part of why i think both jesse and i are so dedicated to that peer support model to that harm reduction model so that you can hold space for people who are experiencing a lot of barriers and are therefore not going to have a recovery journey that mirrors someone else who has access to these different resources. Yeah, I um, kind of wanted to take it as a positive, on a positive note of like cultural identity and like recovery, I think playing back into how we were talking about resilience. I think resilience is a cultural, is a part of queer culture. Resilience and um, knowing that what we've been through, we're, we've been through tough shit and we'll probably be able to get through other tough shit. Um, I think that self-knowledge, um, trans people know themselves more than most people know themselves um, because in order to transition, you have to fully understand and accept yourself for the person that you are, get over all of that shame, and then come out into the world as the person that you actually want to be, regardless of what anyone else thinks. And so I think that there's resilience, there's self-knowledge that's a part of queer culture, there's an ability to change and knowing that change is possible and that Mm -hmm. it is a primary part of queer culture. Um, Community building is a part of queer culture. Um, Empathy, LGBT people in my experience are the most empathetic people. Marginalized people are the most empathetic people because of what they've gone through, they don't want other people to go through the same things. And so when I think about how cultural identity affects an individual in recovery, I would like to give a hopeful message of that queer people can recover Mm -hmm. and we recover well and we recover together as community and we help those behind us recover as well i think jumping off of that too jesse right like you know we're used to sort of slogging through a mess right because like my i've been through the mess in my own brain kind of mess right like i've been i'm like i know how to navigate this swamp of like what the heck is going on up in up in here right and i've 
learned uh what the what the path is through you know it is it's this thing that is like we do hard things we can do hard things and we have done hard things um you know i recently went through quite a bit of stuff in my personal life that really put my recovery in jeopardy in some ways but it was returning to this idea of like you have survived this in the past you have survived worse in the past and so you can get through that too right and it's because I have so much great and wonderful community around me it's because you know Jesse and I have worked so hard in the spaces that we're in to find ways for us to support others and for us to be able to support each other and and ourselves and get support from others too um that that is a huge thing I am community building is a superpower and that and you know surviving trauma it makes you it's you know I have someone that I worked with recently that has um CPTSD and is non-binary and you know they said like empathy is my superpower um (laughs) it is my it is my superpower and it is what helps me keep the world connected. Um, and I just love them. I love them for saying that, you know, cause I do think it's really true. I so appreciate that and really love the emphasis there on solidarity uh, between different communities. They're all kind of going through it. And uh, you know, one thing I'm hearing here is, you know, recovery ultimately is a, a holistic process, right? And that includes so many different variables and it's impossible to even begin to offer help there when we're not considering the full scope of the human in front of us, right? Um, so I, I really appreciate that. And, and also acknowledging that cultural identity comes with, sure, some some challenges, right? Some things you got to clear, but also comes with unique strengths, right? And I really think that's a, that's a really uh, important point to end on there. Um, and, you know, kind of thinking about what's, what's working and what's not, you know, you've touched down a little bit about this previously, but I just want to hear a little bit um, in, in a way, what is, in your opinion, an effective recovery approach or model uh, for LGBTQ plus individuals? Um, I think that we'd be doing a disservice to those individuals to try to pick an approach or model that best fits them. I think that um, for anybody, recovery should be a choice and it should be their own choice and so i wholeheartedly agree in harm reduction i think that um that approach has been shown to be effective um and also gives a great deal of choice to individuals seeking services um i've had individuals that um Staying 100% abstinent sober has been one of their main goals and they wanted me to keep them accountable to it. And I've had people that our goals right now are using less heroin and going to a hygiene center every week. And both of those are valid goals. Both of those are valid recoveries. Both of those individuals will get the same exact support from me um, because... I don't get to choose how somebody recovers. I just get to support them in that recovery. And aside from that, I've taken my privilege and decided that I will try to change um, the systems at play in order to make 
those resources easier to access if and when that LGBT individual wants to approach a recovery um, program. Yeah, I think, Jesse, that's like my first thing, too, is exactly what you said, right? I'm like, I love it. The idea, maybe, maybe actually I don't love the idea of a one size fits all model, right? It's, I'm thinking I'm going to a, a, you know, store and there's like a one size fits most, right? Is like what we've changed into is one size fits most. And I think, uh, Unfortunately, the LGBTQ community tend to be the people that fall outside of the one size fits most. Um, and, and it is really important for us to be able to present options, right? Like a lot of times what needs to happen is not that we need to make a decision for someone, but we need to make them aware of what decision, what kinds of decisions they could make. You know, it goes back to this idea of choice. And a lot of times I think folks in our community feel really backed into corners and like there is no way to turn. There is no step forward. Right. And so it's like, how do we not tell you which two steps to take forward, but show you what different paths are open to you. Right. And it is about like finding ways to support people, no matter what kinds of choices they they need to make in that moment too, right? Like, yeah, that harm reduction piece is so huge for me because I, I know that a lot of times some of the barriers are enabled to being able to like get meds, right? So maybe someone is using a substance in what would be like a, a medically under, like a, a medically approved reason, but they don't have access to a doctor. So they are self-medicating for their anxiety. They are doing some of these things that like maybe we look at and we say that means you're not in recovery right but we're actually being like this is what's helping keep you alive right like sometimes what you have to do to survive makes it so that you don't get to look like a model a person in recovery to the rest of the world right but it's yeah I think that harm reduction piece that multiple avenues is like and maybe that, you know, maybe we have a flow chart. So maybe the one size fits all model is actually like a flow chart that, you know, it's one of those things like if this, then this, if this, then this, right. And and we can have a build your own adventure, adventure recovery. But I think that, I think that for a recovery space and um, a social service nonprofit, we do a really good job at providing a plethora of options in how someone might recover from one-on-one appointments with an unbiased peer counselor to um, 12-step groups to non-12-step recovery meetings to um, drug-specific meetings to generalized community support meetings and going into like specific mental health issues as well. So there really is a um, gravitas of things that someone can choose from. And I know like for myself, 12 step um, seemed like the only option. Um, And I think historically it has been seen as the only option. And um, that's just not true. Um, it's one option and it does work for a good amount of people. I do account 
um, NA to saving my life. It got me clean and sober when I needed to get clean and sober. And, um, but that is a, a spiritual um, method of recovery. There's medical methods of recovery. There's non-spiritual. There's talk therapy. There's a plethora of different options but for some reason we hold on to just one. And I think that that is what needs to be shifting and needs to be um, talking about because, and I would never like talk down on another form of recovery, but the reason that I left 12 step was the rigid, the rigid, uh, the rigid, rigidity, the rigidness. (laughs) The rigidness, the rigidness around how rules were meant to be followed. And that didn't play well into my own traumas and my the life that I had li- lived up until then. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the things that used to drive me crazy. We're about- not talking bad about 12 step, are you? Oh, we're not talking about. Well, but this. <laughs> no, you can share whatever you need to share. Absolutely. Um, it's open well, space. I mean, I think it's about like also being able to acknowledge, like I, I talked about earlier, like I found a way to sort of riff on 12 step with my community that did make sense, right? Like, so we took this model that is the most common model and the easiest to access without a professional involved. And we made it into this whole different other thing that in a lot of ways more mirrors this, this other space. And I've seen other 12 step groups that have also been able to do that same thing. Right. We have a a specifically trans and non-binary AA meeting here. Right. Which means that they are doing a lot to adjust language that has been outdated in the, in that literature and that there are ways to shape, 12 step around that, but also being able to, yeah, there are shortcomings. I think one of the things that was a struggle for me in a more traditional 12 step meeting is this concept of an outside issue. Right. Like, And I was like, well, my, my identity and the identity and the politics around my identity are not an outside issue to my recovery. They are, they are part and parcel with the, struggles that I'm having right now. And so what I like about peer support is that it also thinks about things like housing first models, right? Like that's something we haven't been able to touch on yet. That goes, I think, a right around with the the harm reduction model, right? Is being able to identify that in a more traditional model where like get the, the thing is to like get clean, get sober get a job, get an apartment. And what's really changing is the narrative around like, what if instead of that, we get someone an apartment first, and that gives them the opportunity to feel safe and secure and get out of survival mode some in some ways, which then creates the capacity for recovery for them, right, which is very, which is statistically proven to be a more effective way to help people achieve long-term sobriety or recovery, however they want to define that, right? We need to address basic needs first before we're going to be able to support someone in that in that recovery moment. That's such a powerful uh, message there. You know, I've heard so often in my work as a recovery advocate 
uh, that for many folks, recovery, their recovery journey didn't start until they got access to the keys to their apartment, to their home, they're the first time in their, in their whole life, right? Um, and I think that that's so important. Uh, and you also talked a little bit about grassroots healing, right? And I think that that's so exciting because, you know, say you're looking at the different models and the different approaches to recovery and you feel like something doesn't work, you can always take the things that you like that are working from one and kind of combine it with something else and, and create the community space that you may not see, right? Um, and it seems like y'all are doing a great job over at Pure Seattle to provide that space. But, you know, again, maybe you're not in the area, maybe it's too far, you know, there are other ways, right, to cultivate that space in it does mean a lot to hear that. And I'm also, of course, hearing that, you know, it's about the all pathways to recovery, right? And supporting any and all positive change, whatever that change looks like. So um, thank you both for, for sharing that. So uh, I had the pleasure of hearing a little bit about this at the Pure Pathways Conference the other week, but I would love to hear a little bit more from Jesse and Ari um, about this question of how can peer-led organizations increase trans and gender non-conforming representation within their organizations. Yeah, so one of the things that I've loved about um, Jesse and I working together is this sort of like, there's a lot of like, raise awareness, a lot of like, here's a lot of scary statistics, right? But Jesse and I were able to use Peer Seattle as sort of a, an, a, a experiment ground for like tangible things, right? So I think we have our feelings are like foundational values and leadership who support this in a in a meaningful way it is in building representation starting at leadership and going all the way down into your unpaid you know volunteers which is what ultimately will increase the representation within your member base or client base that means having trainings for your staff at all levels. It means having programming that is specific to the trans and gender non-conforming community. It's not just that you are telling trans people they are safe in the spaces that you already have that exist. It's about building spaces for them to feel safe in, right? And listening to them about what things they need, right? It's, it's, one of the things that um, I had never even thought about before is things like learning how to use makeup as a trans woman, right? Like having, so we have an event that's done quarterly where we provide makeup to folks and we teach them some of these skills that, you know, a, a cis woman might learn organically through osmosis of being socialized as a woman. And that's not something people have exposure to. So I would have never known that. And I'm, and I'm a trans person, right? And I would never have even thought about that because of what my life is. And so I, you know, that's the thing that I was like, whoa, so listening, right? Like when having that representation come from listening to what the needs are. Um, and then, you know, just like, creating that safety those say you know when we talk about safe space it's a lot i feel like we talk a lot right now in this field around safe space or safer space or brave space you know these different terms that mean basically the same thing and you know that is like sort of a, a nice container component at the end to like present to people but it's really like these other things go into creating the safe space that you can then tell people things are. Yeah, I think that it's easy to 
slap a sign on a door and say that you're a safe space for a community, it's a lot harder to actually represent that safety and um, represent that community. And so um, one thing that I would say is hire trans people of color. (laughs) Hire trans people into management roles and tell them it's not going to be easy. Be upfront with them. Tell them about your diversity problem. Tell them about your diversity issues. Make sure that they're willing to, they, that they have a connection with your organization and are willing to fight for diversifying that organization. Don't trap them into a position where they feel like they aren't supportive but are supposed to care about the diversity of an organization. Um, trust what they say. Trust, give like trust their feedback. The whole reason behind diversifying an organization or a business is about innovation, is about how can we better our, like ultimately diversity betters an organization or betters a company where the more diverse voices, the more innovative ideas are created, the more credibility an organization is given in the streets, the more, um, competent services the organization is able to provide. How are you going to help the most vulnerable individuals if you have no idea what their life is even like? And so I think that how do you diversify? You can look up a thousand different ways of how to diversify, but at the end of the day, it's about actually taking people's opinions from diverse communities for not like with a grain of salt, but for the actual reality that it is and work with them on solutions. Um, Don't ask them to come up with solutions and come back to you later. Don't put all of the burden on the ground floor workers. Um, And I think that for marginalized communities, it's apparent. Mm-hmm. You can tell when some an organization is trying and when they're not. And um, similarly to how like trans people can tell if you purposely misgender us versus accidentally misgendering us. Like we're not stupid. <laughs> and I think that sometimes society treats marginalized people like they're stupid or that they're dumb. And that placating to our needs is enough but it's not and I think that as queer people in recovery we shouldn't settle for enough or okay or minimal services we should be championing for the services that we need and deserve Um, and I say deserve because there's an inequality already, but also we are a more vulnerable community that needs these services more than other communities. Um, and so I think that I could tell you a hundred ways of how to increase representation for trans people. Um, but I think it's more important to just do it. Just like talk to someone that doesn't look like you mentor someone that doesn't look like you like i'm tired of 
cis white male leaders being lost in how to create diversity when all it takes is putting all of your thoughts and feelings to the side for a momentary conversation and then believing that person and what they're telling you and saying to them, I would like to work with you in making this better. <laughs> no, I mean, that's what Jesse said. One of the things I was going to say that you just hit right the nail right on the head is decentralizing your own discomfort. If you are a leader, um, you know, I think some of what can be really challenging is when people have, um, you know, they have a marginalized identity, right? So they are, they have experienced discrimination, um, but they do not necessarily understand another community's mark, what, what goes into the discrimination of a different community. And so while you might understand some piece of things, right, you, you're not going to understand everything. I'm a white person, so I'm not going to be able to understand the experience of a BIPOC person, right? Um, but I can decentralize my own discomfort and hear and learn about what I can do to better support a community that I'm not part of, but I have to take my ego out of that first. The first step is taking my own ego out of it. The first step is, um, is acknowledging that I don't know and I can't know. So I'm going to go to someone who does. Right. Um, and it is that I think the leadership piece of things is really important too, like Jesse was saying, because, there's a lot, there's a big push, I think, to sort of diversify staffs, but that means it's all happening on the bottom level, right? So there are no structural changes being made to an organization where the only marginalized, you know, people with intersecting marginalized identity are at your entry level staff. They're at your direct service staff. They're not up in leadership because that is where systematic changes happen. That's where conversations around systematic things, that is where, that is the level it happens. I mean, Jesse and I started doing a lot of work together to do this at, when we were both at a PSS level, but Jesse getting promoted into the program manager role that she's in now made a huge difference for us. You know, she, every person that she has hired into her team has been part of the trans or gender non-conforming community. And that's, that's how that looks, right? That's what that means. And that, you know, because when we were finding new candidates for these roles, we had trans people who were like, oh, I have a, I'm going to have a trans manager. Like, wow, I want that job. Right. Like I, and, and that's because, because that's like, that's like a unicorn. Unheard of. Unheard of. Like, it's literally, like, unheard of to have a trans manager because the only trans people are on that, in that entry level, right? Um, and, I mean, I do the same thing as the volunteer coordinator at our organization. Um, a lot of the folks who end up on our full-time staff come from our volunteer pool. It's one of the things that I love about working for the organization I work for. It has always been committed to sort of hiring from within, promoting from within. And so it's about diversifying at that level too, right? And creating safety for people and empowering them in that way. It is about that mentorship piece. I've been very lucky to be able to mentor 
um, a couple of different gender nonconforming folks who started as volunteers and are now my colleagues. And I am working with them. And that's because I was able to create safety for them within my program enough so that they were able to see and understand that they would be safe as Jesse's employee, right? Like, and so then, then we get to have our people full of, of love and, and really ready to take on the work head on and support people because they've also received that support from us. Absolutely. Um, I just wanted to say there that, uh, you know, it's really the emphasize is not just about talking about expanding representation and diversity within your workplace, life, social circles, but actually taking actionable steps to make that a reality. I hate to, you know, borrow a certain, a certain corporate phrase, but uh, just do it, <laughs> you know, kind of applies a little bit here, right? Um, actually taking the steps that um, that y'all have listed out. And I really appreciate y'all giving advice on kind of an insider look of how you can actually do this within peer-led organizations. But I think a lot of what y'all were saying, you could apply in different workplaces and different environments. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the context of behavioral health recovery. So I hope listeners out there know that, you know, this can be absolutely expanded and uh, brought into different circumstances as well. So I so appreciate that insight that y'all are sharing uh, and trying to shift a little bit into what people out there, listeners can do to, you know, show support, be good allies. Uh, I would like to hear from y'all. What do you feel allies can do to best support LGBTQ plus people going in the process of recovery? Yeah, I think that um, allies are so important to any marginalized community. We can't do this alone. Um, when you think about a marginalized community, the whole one of the reasons they're marginalized is the number of individuals in that community. Um, so in the grand scheme of things, we represent a small number of individuals. Um, but because of that, we need allies. Um, and we need allies that support us um, Casual support is my new favorite thing, is casual support. Showing your support for our community, not when you're next to someone in our community. Um, telling someone that it's not cool when they call someone a he, she, or they make a rude comment to somebody in the street, or they talk about someone behind their back because they're X, Y, and Z, or they're part of this, this, and this. I know for a fact that just as diversity is hard because white leaders have a hard time seeing themselves in non-white individuals, it's the same thing with um, allies and support. It's hard for people to support a community they don't recognize themselves in. Um, but it's also, you are the people with the power to change that attitude within your own community. So if you start changing how you're viewing a community and you outwardly do it um, just casually with the people in your life, their opinion of that community is going to shift. Um, and so that's my that's what I always say to allies is that like you are arguably the most important part of our community because you are the only ones that are able to communicate to the masses or the people in your community why we matter. Um, and it's, but that's how this, the world works. It's 
that's why there's I'm I'm able to do the work that I do um, because I am a pretty white girl. Like I am a very privileged individual, regardless of like the amount of struggle that I've faced. Like statistically, trans women, regardless of their level of privilege or socioeconomic upbringing, are just as likely to have the negative statistics around trans women. Which but is- I use my privilege, and I'm I'm on this podcast because of my privileges, and so when allies start using their own privileges in order to help people that don't look like them or don't act like them or don't have the same life as them, but that are just trying to live, this casual support is the way to go, in my opinion. See, it's funny because I would everything that you're saying is, is what I would say, but I, I feel like it's actually, for me, I think of that as active allyship so it's interesting it's interesting that we have like the same idea but like opposite words right so the the um the thing that i always i meant like casual in the sense of like it's like in your community like making it not a big deal to stand up for another community yeah like you're not like oh my god i can't believe you said that about her right (laughs) <laughs> As opposed to like maybe performative allyship, yeah. right? Yeah. Like trying to be an ally when it's convenient for you or when you're on, you know, the spotlight, yeah. but you know, being an ally beyond the spotlight or, as well. It's kind of or like a formal allyship, maybe, right? Casual versus formal yeah. in that way, where formal allyship is like you saying, Yes, I support diversifying staff, blah, you know, I support like this, right? And it is maybe performative, but um, the thing that I always, I, I feel like this was a big thing in the Chicago activism scene that I was in, like a, you know, I don't know, five years ago. So this might be a passe thing now, but here we go. Um, I remember there was a lot of talk around the difference between an ally and a com- and an accomplice, right? An ally is someone who sort of like says they support the community. If you're an accomplice, that means you're like doing active work, right? You're there is an action. It's action based, right? So that is exactly what Jesse is saying. It is like not just saying I support trans people. It's correcting your friend when they misgender someone else, whether that person is in the room or not, right? It's about not making a trans person consistently, constantly educate others about the trans experience or any marginalized experience, right? Um, It's about doing your own education and research into what is you know, what is the best way to support a trans person, right? Like listening to this podcast. Great. Good job. Right. Like you've now had, yeah, well, you've now had, you've, you've now had time to listen to three queer people talk about this. Right. Um, and that is, so now when you encounter someone, hopefully you take something away from listening to this and you can apply that to, the next trans person you go to support, you know, it, there are so many resources in out in the world now, so many infographics, so many TikToks or reels, you know, that you can watch that we don't necessarily, you don't necessarily have to like read a whole book on how to help trans people in order to do that research. You can find it in really simple places, you know, that, that education is huge because then you, you, 
are not asking that person to do that for you, right? You're not asking that person to become a monolith in of their community. Um, and, and then, you know, also thinking about connecting that idea, it is like just because you know one trans person that has this one specific experience, it does not mean that you can apply all of the same tools or language to another person, right? So it is a balance between like, yes, do education, but also be aware that no matter how much education you have, there's probably still going to be unique differences uh, and unique challenges for any individual that you're working with. Um, and so seeing both those common threads and themes and being able to acknowledge individual experience as an ally or an advocate or an accomplice to, to marginalized communities. Well, and I think that you pointed to something that I just wanted to make a note on is that it's hard to ask for help as anybody, as human beings, it's hard to ask for help. As people entering recovery, it's hard to ask for help. And as a marginalized person entering recovery, it's even harder to ask for help. And so if you go into a space and you finally got the courage up to ask for help, and then that person responds with, well, actually help me first because I just do not understand your identity. It's not gonna be a good experience for that person who finally got the courage to ask for help. Yeah, that window of willingness is so precious and it's a huge thing we talk about in the recovery community, but I think it often gets ignored when we think about intersections that get missed out on the dominant narrative of things, right? And so with gender and sexuality, you know, there's not that consideration. Um, and, you know, one thing that really makes me think about is that, you know, and it, Jesse touched on this a little bit, like we all have some kind of privilege one way or another, right? Uh, some capacity, right? And so I think we're possible. Others have extremely different power differentials than others, um, but we all have the ability, I think, to be gate openers, door openers, as opposed to gatekeepers, right? Um, and I think that that's such a, an important role for, I think, any ally or accomplice or even people in our community to be aware of, right? How can we continue to, to make it as open as possible and get as many different voices that aren't here a part of the conversation um, and then support, right? So that's so, so awesome. Um, just to end us today, I would just so love to hear from y'all. If there's anything else that you all would like to share with our audience or anything else, any resources or anything at all. Anybody that's listening, you are doing okay. You are doing the best that you can. Um, there are, you're not alone. There are people out there that are willing to walk along this path, this journey with you. Um, don't be afraid to ask for help and stick it out because it's doable. I've seen so many people recover and change their lives for the better. And um, that's why I do the work that I do is I believe in the power of people and the power of community and our ability to heal each other. Yeah. And I think I would add on to that, right? Like there are people who are willing to, right? Like there are people who are willing to learn. There are people who are willing to do the work here and, so keeping that in mind too, that's something that I personally have had to like 
do a lot of wrestling with is like encountering barriers and, and being able to understand that there are people who are willing to support me and help me in lowering those barriers, right? There are people outside of my own community that are willing to help if I go and do ask for that, or if I communicate that harm is being done, right? Like there, there are people out there who will listen and they will hear that, right? It's not everybody, but sometimes all it takes is finding one person who is willing to support you to help you then start really changing things in any organization, right? Um, you know, I would say that like, yeah, this started, Jesse and I started as entry-level employees and this work started when we were both at that space. Um, and, and that is, so you can speak truth to power and make a difference in, in your organization, even if you don't currently have, have power in that sort of traditional sense. Right. Um, and there, but cause there is, there's a lot of power in numbers, right? So don't be, don't get isolated too, right? I think sometimes there's a tendency for isolation within various marginalized communities. And like, we are stronger together than we are separate. And we do not always have to be fighting for the J-E-D-I mic, right? Like we can, we can like grab that mic together and hold it for each other when we need to, to be able to have our voices be louder and to be able to create equity in these spaces, or at least working towards equity. Um, you know, and, and I think realizing that the work is also never done, you know, the work is never done. And maybe we have done a lot of work on our own personal space to address unconscious bias or to interrogate the systemic issues that this country has, but there's still always work to be done. There's still more, there's still probably something you're missing. Um, and, and finding that person like Jesse has talked about to, to listen to. Well, and sit in the uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. That's my new favorite thing. And it might sound crazy, but I want to know why I'm feeling uncomfortable in a moment. And usually I just work past it and get angry at somebody for something they said. And, um, really sitting and like realizing like why am I feeling uncomfortable because of something someone else is doing or the life they're living or the words that they said to me especially like that's outside of if it's like a direct insult or something but like I've had times where like I'm still learning and growing and like why do I take a comment of like so to heart. Mm. Um, and I think that it's healthy for us to evaluate why our thought processes are how they are. Because um, I think a lot of part of our whole culture or our existence as humans is learned behavior. And sometimes we don't even know why we or when we learn something or why we do something or why we have an opinion about something. And those opinions are directly related to our identity. And when they're confronted, it can feel uncomfortable. But that's not a bad, uncomfortable place to be. It's actually a place of learning and growth. And so 
try to remind yourself that when you feel uncomfortable, um, especially when you don't know why, just know that like there might be something that you should think about overcoming in terms of how you view something in this world. Another thing I was just thinking about too, um, don't be afraid to be the squeaky wheel, right? Like don't be afraid to be loud and take up noise because as, as uncomfortable as it might be to have a spotlight on you and to potentially have, you know, be engaged in some really difficult conversations when you do make a choice to become that leader and become that advocate for your community in a space that can be really scary and uncomfortable, but know that you're putting in that work and you doing that will support your community, support someone else. There's probably someone else out there who's experiencing that same thing and you doing that work, which sucks to have to do, right? It does suck to have to like be the monolith and take on the system and take on leadership or, you know, whatever has to happen. Um, But if you do that, know that you, you know, that is how you open the door to the other people. That is how you like reach your hand backwards and grab people. You know, people have to be willing to be loud and to take up space in order for things to change right things the system doesn't change if we are just silent about the harm that we are experiencing i feel like this whole were we even talking about recovery this whole podcast (laughs) i i heard recovery mentioned here and there absolutely um i hear that as a theme I, well, I just want to say I so appreciate all this helpful insight, and I know our audience does as well. Uh, and thank you both for taking the time out of your day to, to share a little bit about your experiences. And we're just so honored to, to have you on this podcast. Um, I just want to quickly segue a little bit into some recovery news. Um, as, also, as always, we like to end our podcast episodes, which is a quick update on some uh, recovery news coming for our community. So the King County Recovery Art Showcase is now available for viewing through October. So on Friday, October 13th, from 6 to 9, there will actually be an October Belltown Art Walk in Seattle. And there is an artist reception and a party that night at Van Studio Salon. Uh, That's at 2030 First Ave, uh, Seattle, 98121. And it'll be closed on Mondays, but if you're there on Friday, we'll see you. Um, All right. So thank you so much, Ari and Jesse, for your time and sharing your experiences with us today. And I want to give a special thank you to our production team, work p2p and uh that's it for the today and hope everyone take care and we'll uh convene soon again thank you all so much thank you tristan thank you i'm heather venegas thanks for listening to king county recovery conversations a place to celebrate recovery and help break the stigma of addiction and mental health If you or a loved one are experiencing substance use disorder, problem gambling, and or a mental health challenge, please visit the Washington Recovery Helpline at warecoveryhelpline.org for resources and a 24-hour helpline. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Special thanks to our production team at Work P2P Studios. If you'd like to share your recovery journey with us, please email me at heather at kcrecovery.org. We'll be back in two weeks with another story of hope, resilience, and healing.